We live in an age of contradictions, don't we? We're supposed to believe that men can be women, that there is no truth, except for that claim, that unborn humans are not persons, and that killing babies is reproductive justice. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that abortion activists can also be obstetricians. Now, I know you're thinking, wait, but an obstetrician cares for a pregnancy, a pregnant woman, and then therefore the child inside. No, 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 don't you know you're not woke. You can actually support killing babies and kill them and still meet the standard and definition of obstetrician. So Dr. Brent Bowles, a good friend of the show, OBGYN, and the new medical director for Heartbeat International, joins us today to discuss the little-known story of how Elena Kagan, before sitting on the Supreme Court, colluded with the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecology, ACOG, to change their position on partial birth abortions as a, well, sometimes necessary procedure to save the life of the mother so that President Bill Clinton could have the uh, science on his side when he vetoed the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act. From that point, the ACOG became a science sticker for pro-abortion activists and politicians to slap over their bigotry in order to masquerade as just science and health advocates. All that and more, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Dr. Brent, welcome to the show once again. Hey, Seth. Good, Good to, to be see with you. you. You are in your in your white lab coat. Um, unfortunately, a dress that has um, become hated in the last year and a half for obvious reasons, <laughs> as as lab coats and technocrats are running the country. But thank you for being the exception. Thank you for meeting the real standard and bar for an obstetrician. Uh, we have a lot of talk uh, about today, but firstly, I think a congratulations are in order. Congratulations on your new position as the medical director for Heartbeat International. Thank you, Seth. It's, it's really an honor to be able to do that. And uh, it seems like there's just something almost every day that I'm working to address or assist with. and. Um, that um, that actually is a great way to to open our show today because because I have a little something I want to rant about uh, that I just need to get off my chest and it has to do with that very issue. Um, to give you a little background at first, uh, your your listeners need to understand this background. I recently was um, asked to assist the Attorney General of the state of Indiana to defend Indiana's new law that requires abortion providers who are administering a chemical abortion to notify the patient beforehand that if she changes her mind after taking the first pill, uh, that there is a means of attempting to reverse the effects or interfere with the effects of the mifepristone. Right. Of course, the abortion industry and the American College of OBGYNs or ACOG uh, steadfastly hold to the position that you can't reverse it, that there's no evidence that that works. And, you know, that's a, that's a show for another day because it's, I, I could talk for two hours about all the evidence uh, that it works. Uh, but one of their experts in this uh, recent court action in federal court in Indiana uh, stated in a sworn declaration that abortion providers didn't need to be forced to 
um, notify patients about the, the possibility of reversal if they change their mind. And, right. and I'm going to paraphrase here. She said it was because abortion providers are good at knowing when the patient is really dedicated or really certain of their decision, um, and they don't proceed with an abortion if the patient is ambivalent. Um, she stated that under penalty of perjury in her declaration, that is a matter of public record. Um, wow. Well, this morning I took a phone call uh, because even though I'm a medical director now, I still uh, volunteer as a provider of reversal prescriptions for patients. I took right. a phone call from a woman uh, who had called the hotline. She took Mifeprex yesterday afternoon. And by the time she went to sleep last night, she had changed her mind. She regretted it. Wow. Um, and this morning she called the hotline and uh, she's already uh, should by now have gotten her first prescription of the progesterone to reverse her Mifeprex. Uh, when I was talking to her before I called the prescription in, I asked her, um, I said, how did the appointment go yesterday? Um, did you, what did, what did you talk about? And she said, well, I sat with the counselor for 45 minutes and sobbed the whole time because I really didn't want to do this. My boyfriend won't have anything to do with me if I'm going to have a baby. He said he didn't want to, to have anything to do with the baby. So essentially this woman was pressured into proceeding with an abortion, which is, it's illegal to coerce women into abortion in most states. Um, and she spent 45 minutes crying with a counselor, telling the counselor she didn't want to do it. And what did the abortion provider do? They took her money and they gave her Mifeprex and watched her swallow it and sent her on her way. Wow. Yes. Um, they didn't do any of the things that a woman's health care provider does That's when right. you have the suspicion that a woman is possibly in danger. They didn't ask her if she was safe. They didn't ask her if he ever hit her. They didn't ask her if she was going to have a place to sleep that night. They, they didn't ask her any of that. They just right. took her money and gave her her pills and sent her on her way. So, so much for her choice. Uh, because it wasn't her choice to abort. It was her boyfriend's. Um, right. And now it's her choice to try to reverse it. And the pro-life advocates have helped her. Uh, but the abortion industry would continue to lie to her and tell her that there's nothing she can do. That's right. So wow. rant concluded. Wow. Th thank you for sharing, Dr. Brown. I mean, that's powerful. And this is <clears throat> happening all around the country. Um, thousands of babies are being saved through the abortion reversal pill, um, not because pro-lifers are opening up their mouths and shoving down progesterone to reverse the effects of Mifeprax or Mifepristone, but because these women want the reversal pill. They are making yes. a, um, what's the word, uh, a choice. They're a making choice. a choice to reverse wow. the effects of their abortion because they no longer want to go through with it. <clears throat> and this, of course, gets to the lie of choice because choice, Dr. Bren, as you well know, refers to informed choices. You can't really make a choice unless you have the adequate knowledge or maturity to make that choice. This is why we say that uh, minors cannot have sex 
because if you engage in sex as a minor, we're, we, the, the cultural, not assumption, the cultural understanding is that you actually haven't really made that choice because you're not informed enough or old enough as an 11-year-old to decide to have sex, much less with someone who's over 18. Well, the same thing holds true in the issue of abortion. These women can't really make a choice unless it's an informed choice. And for the listeners, for you guys listening, what Dr. Brent just said is, is he's been helping with a lawsuit as a te uh, testifying about these bills in some states, and I think this one was in Indiana, saying, hey, we're going to pass a law that says that when a woman comes in to get the abortion pill at a facility or center, that they tell her about the option of reversal if she changes her mind. And every time the ACLU or some abortion rights legal group comes out, files out a lawsuit, because what? They don't want women to have all the information to make informed choices. And at the very front of this, Dr. Brent, has been the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecology or Gynecologists. They are, they are a tool of the abortion left to hide information that would allow women to make informed choices and to even peddle lies about either the abortion pill, the abortion reversal pill, or abortion writ large. And so let's get to that today because I believe that this is an abortion group that is masquerading <coughs> as obstetricians. And so just for our <laughs> listeners, tell us about ACOG. Who are they? What's their reputation? Give us the, 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 the breakdown. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has been around for decades. I think they probably started in the 1950s. Um, in most areas, in most ways, they've been an incredibly good organization for women's health care. They work to set standards for education for uh, those, in, those pursuing a career in OBGYN. They provide educational information. They help with maintaining board certification, achieving board certification there. In, in almost every way, they're an excellent professional organization. But in the area of abortion, ideology comes first, and there's no room for dissent. That's why I stopped paying ACOG dues a long time ago, uh, probably almost 20 years ago. Um, because when you pay members, when you pay dues to the American College of OBGYN several hundred dollars a year, the portion of that that goes to political activism always supports abortion. There That's is right. no room for dissent. They do not tolerate dissent. They work to advance an agenda that not only pushes abortion ideology and places it ahead of patient safety and real evidence-based medicine, they continue to push the narrative and assist with it that medical students and residents trained in OBGYN should be required to be trained to perform abortions. Wow. Now, why do they do that? Because I'll tell you why, and this speaks to the very nature of abortion itself. If there were no moral, ethical, common sense issue with abortion, then more of the thousands and thousands of OBGYNs across the country would be willing to do them. You know, right. Reimbursement rates from insurance companies and from Medicare and Medicaid are constantly decreasing, overheads going up. If you're looking for a revenue stream, well, if there's no ethical issue with that, why aren't more people doing it? That's right. More than 90% of OBGYNs in the country today do not engage in abortion as a routine part wow. of practice. Wow. Uh, probably about 85% never, ever do it. Wow. So well, that's good. if it was the... If it was the clear-cut 
um, good issue worth celebrating and lighting up the Empire State Building for. Why aren't more people doing it? That's right. That's right. So because clearly... on some level, on some level, even if they say I'm for a woman's right to choose, I'm a supporter of choice, on some level, they cannot bring themselves to go into the operating room and do that on a daily right. basis. Amen. That's right. Wonderfully put, Dr. Brent. I think it's fair to say that ACOG uh, does not represent even close uh, any of the positions, medical, political, or scientific, of the people who they claim to represent. I mean, they're the most respected institution and establishment in the obstetrics world, and yet they don't even represent the majority position within ob obstetrics, which is, according to you, 90% of people who, who, who don't do uh, abortions. But I want to discuss a little-known story of real corruption and collusion coming from the highest levels of government because we've been told for the last year and a half or two or three years that Trump colluded with Russia, Trump colluded with the Ukrainians, collusion, 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 and then it all turned out to be false, of course. Well, let's talk about a story of real collusion and corruption during the Clinton administration and the role that Elena Kagan played in converting the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists from a respectable scientific establishment, even though I think there was some pro-choice seeds in that institution even then, to another scientific court jester for the culture of death. Um, and this was a story that I wasn't even aware of myself, and I do this full time. So I really wanted to talk about this together for our listeners, for the culture to wake people up to the type of corruption when ideology goes before reality, before science, and before really the Hippocratic Oath. So um, tell us a story about Elena Kagan, who is an abortion activist masquerading as a lawyer in the White House. Absolutely. And, and you said you know, that there were probably seeds of abortion support in ACOG. They, they were full-on pro-abort uh, at this point. They just weren't as openly aggressive about it as they are wow. now. So, and then that fact that they were full-on pro-abortion uh, is why they were so easily swayed uh, by Elena Kagan. Now, understand that ACOG has been behind a, a very important push that practitioners of women's health care practice evidence-based medicine. We hear it over and over and over again. Make your decisions based on evidence. Here are the, here are the clinical trials. Here are our recommendations based on the best evidence. Um, but on abortion, it's, it's ideology before evidence. Uh, and this is just one very disturbing story. So in 1995 or 96, uh, Congress under President Bill Clinton had, over his objections, passed a law that outlawed, placed a federal ban on a particularly brutal method of terminating a late-term pregnancy called partial birth abortion. It's also known as intact dilation and extraction uh, is the, yeah. and because that's a name for it, that's why you see uh, medical people sometimes saying, oh, there's no such thing as partial birth abortion. Yes, there is, that's just one name for it. Uh, but anyway, the, the ban was against that particular procedure. Um, the ban, when passed, contained no exception for the life or the health of the mother. And President Clinton readily vetoed it. Right. He ran into problems when it became apparent that the American College of OBGYN, 
ACOG, the biggest professional organization of women's healthcare providers in the world, when it was revealed that they had a position piece that said this particular method of abortion, intact dilation and extraction, is not necessary to preserve the health or life of the mother. It is never the only alternative available. Well, right. Those are pretty strong words. Not, never. You know, you, you rarely see those, those terms in medicine because there are so many exceptions to virtually all of the rules. That's right. um, but they even use terms like, you know, we looked at every imaginable circumstance. You know, they, right, right. Yeah. And they had an official position that said it's not necessary to do this to protect the life or health of the mother. And that is true. There are other ways to end a pregnancy when the woman's life is in danger. Um, and they, they involve simply delivering the baby, something regular obstetricians do every day. All across the country, premature pregnancies are ended because the mother's life's in danger and they're ended by delivering the baby in the way that is the most safe for the mother and the baby. Right. Yeah, yeah. The only, the only, the only real reason, the only purpose for late-term abortion is to ensure that the baby is fully dead before it's fully delivered, and that's that's a simple truth. I'll get criticized for it. Wow. A friend of mine made that statement on Twitter once, and you know, got slaughtered by tons of people on the other side. But it's the simple truth. Yeah. So. And just to your point, Dr. Brent, just to make sure that we're being very clear and citing this um, uh, swing for swing, the document and official position that Dr. Brent just mentioned from the ACOG at the time of the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act that President Clinton ended up, ended up vetoing, they faxed that to the White House on December 5th, 1996. And here's what they said. They could identify no circumstances under which this procedure would be the only option to save the life or preserve the health of the woman. So to your point, that's when they faxed it to the White House. That was their position. Uh, continue the story. Well, they, that position, that, was the that wording was the result of a task force, uh, which to that point had accepted no input from anyone outside the task force. They did not contact partisans on either side. They didn't take advice or opinion from lawyers or legislators or political figures uh, up to that point. Right. Um, but the reason they faxed that to Associate White House Counsel Elena Kagan was that shortly after the veto that Clinton had issued, she trotted from the White House over to the ACOG headquarters, which is also in DC, and met with ACOG's chief lobbyist and one of their former presidents. And she came away from that meeting and took apparently copious notes that she wrote by hand, her handwriting. And the reason we know this is because 14 years later, Barack Obama nominated her to fill an empty seat on the Supreme Court. Right. And the Senate Judiciary Committee then has the right to see all of her official records. And those records, unfortunately for them, included her handwritten notes and the facts which had been sent to her at the White House. Wow. So Republicans on the committee noticed the difference between 
you know, what she was saying and what she had been pushing for and what she wrote in her handwritten notes and um, what the so-called official position of ACOG was. And it's really interesting. In her handwritten notes, she documented what she thought would be better wording for that position piece. And guess what? In January of 1997, ACOG released a new official position on partial birth abortion, and it contained the exact wording found in Elena Kagan's own handwriting in her personal notes that were revealed in her Senate confirmation hearings. Wow. And she tried to defend herself when she was asked about that. Of course, the media ran with her defense of her actions on that because she said she didn't just, she didn't define it, she reframed it. No, no, words are important. She completely redefined the position. Right. She, if you want to say she reframed it, she took the frame of truth off of it and put the frame of abortion ideology on it. So <laughs> if that's what you call reframing, then uh, go for it. But um, that, that's what she did. And she, she, she had said in her own internal discussions that, you know, we looked at every imaginable circumstance and we just can't find a way to make the president's health and life exception language work. So <laughs> instead of having law and policy follow the science, follow the evidence, That's right. she let ideology, she convinced ACOG to let ideology reframe the medical position and throw evidence-based medicine out the window. Wow. So that's that's why ACOG now has the position that, you know, there are other alternatives and it's best to leave it up to the doctor. Wow. So wait, so, Dr. Ben, are you telling me that that Clinton, like this president now, looked to unelected scientific white lab coat egghead bureaucrats to justify their political and ideological goals? <laughs> Well, they, they got the white-coated doctors to, to start marching lockstep with what they needed politically. Uh, right. They didn't really ask the, the doctors what was true and right and good and, wow. and best for women. They told the doctors what they needed, and those doctors complied. Wow. It's almost like this has been happening for a long time. So um, you, you have called this uh, ACOG's uh, Kaganized position on partial birth abortion. <laughs> and because of that, Dr. Brent, this made its way into other high-level federal judicial opinions. So why don't you continue just explaining some of the damage that happens when you put ideology before evidence-based medicine as Elena Kagan, as sort of a, a pontiff of secular progressivism made clear? Uh, that's, and that's so true. That really did happen. So, um, to my knowledge, it was first used this Kaganized position on partial birth abortion, uh, issued by ACOG was first used in the year 2000 in the Supreme court case, the case before the court of Stenberg v. Carhartt. Um, Stenberg was, I believe the attorney general of the state of Nebraska, 
which had passed a state ban on partial birth abortion. And that ban, of course, offended notorious late-term abortionist Leroy Carhartt, who had a facility in Nebraska at the time. So Carhartt sued the state. Stenberg defended the suit, uh, went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court referred back to the Haganized ACOG position on partial birth abortion and said, you know, here's, here's our medical scientific justification for overturning this ban. And they ruled in favor of Carhartt, the plaintiff, um, in that case, uh, not Stenberg and the state of Nebraska. So it was used then. Then four years later, uh, another Congress uh, during the presidency of George W. Bush passed another federal ban on partial birth abortion. Uh, that ban was challenged in court. And federal court judge in one of the lower courts, Judge Richard Knopf, or Kopf, I believe was his name, um, he overturned the congressional ban. And in wow. his opinion, elaborated specifically on how ACOG's Kaganized position, and he didn't realize he had been Kaganized, um, <laughs> but he... <laughs> But he, he referred to that position um, and said, you know, this precedent was good enough for the Supreme Court in 2000, and it's good enough for me. And it's especially good enough for me because ACOG has made it clear that their task force that arrived at this opinion did not accept input from any experts with bias. They didn't accept input from politicians or legislators. They didn't accept any outside input from any individual or entity. That is what the federal judge believed or what he was willing to say when he overruled the congressional ban. He did not know that ACOG had, um, had allowed not just influence, but allowed a politically appointed attorney with no medical experience at all to favor abortion ideology, ignore evidence, and actually write the key phrases in ACOG's position on partial birth abortion. And to this day, to my knowledge, ACOG has never publicly acknowledged that or corrected the impression that has been used to determine very important federal court cases. Now, fortunately, the Bush administration appealed Judge Kopp's decision, and in 2004, Gonzalez v. Carhartt, we hear Carhartt again, he uh, pursued that this issue again. Um, Alberto Gonzalez was uh, America's first Latino attorney general appointed by George W. Bush, uh, and he prevailed in the Supreme Court. Uh, this is one of those examples in abortion jurisprudence where the court has actually ruled, you know, has ignored stare decisis and looked at more specific, right. more appropriate facts That's and right. has reversed itself on a key abortion decision. Um, yeah. So as we approach, and this is a little off topic, but as we approach uh, the upcoming Dobbs uh, versus Jackson Women's Health that uh, yeah. the court has decided to hear, the public and the court need to be reminded that they have um, over, they have overlooked or ignored or overturned the principle of stare decisis uh, on abortion cases before, and they need to once again. So. Yeah, that's right. 
Yes, and good, good, good judges and jurists are required to do that, despite the fact that John Roberts, who continues to stab the conservative movement and in so doing unborn children in the back, argued in the last abortion decision before the Supreme Court that, oh, we have to honor the stare decisis decision. Um, and so I can't require abortion providers to meet the same surgical medical requirements as other ambulatory surgical centers in Louisiana. Because, I, you know, even though I supported them meeting those same requirements in the Texas case, which I'm forgetting the name of right now, um, I have to go by stare decisis. I've got, to, I've got to rule the same way, even though I agree with the premises in, in, that the pro-lifers are making. Well, in, in that case, John Roberts, then you would have voted to uphold Dred Scott. You would have, up, you would have voted to, to honor stare decisis in that case as well. So obviously, stare decisis um, is not the best thing since sliced bread, and you do need to often ignore it. But you guys, what Dr. Brent is saying is that the, the, <laughs> the scribblings of an unelected White House official and lawyer gets embedded into the jurisprudence of the abortion debate in America and then used to uphold the brain suctioning and murder of babies through partial birth abortions by upholding it in a Nebraska case that goes before the Supreme Court and by upholding it through a federal judge decision um, uh, before it ends up going to Bush in 2003, 2004, and ends up, ends up finally going through. I mean, this is wild stuff. I mean, it's my opinion that a current sitting Supreme Court justice who has now been revealed to have inappropriately inserted herself in the process on an abortion issue and allowed her ideological position to be to masquerade as evidence-based medicine, uh, she should be recused from any case about abortion that comes before the court uh, because she right. will not fairly consider yep. uh, the evidence. She won't. Yep. Uh, it, it won't be fairly considered. Now, she'll, of course, she'll never recuse herself, but that that is something yep. the public needs to know and they need to understand as they're that's watching right. what happens with this case that's coming. Yep, yep. Um, yes. The, and the, the problem is, is it's partly her uh, and partly her willingness and the willingness of others to conduct themselves that way. A bigger problem is a res an otherwise respected medical institution that people look to for unbiased guidelines and evidence on what is best for uh, a very vital element of our healthcare sector. Yeah. Um, uh, it's that's that's a bigger problem in my opinion. Yeah. Um, they're they're just not they are not reliable. They are not trustworthy on the issue of abortion. Uh, and right. even when caught with their hand in the cookie jar, they won't admit it uh, yeah. and publicly correct the um, the misperception you know that they are and uh, a neutral um, arbiter of no, right. evidence-based medicine. They're not. That's right. And what major science or health establishment is there today in America 
that is not compromised. The WHO is basically operated by China. The CDC is pro-abortion and serves at the beck and call of Democrats. And the American College of Obstetricians and, Gyne and Gynecologists is uh, a, a, a group of abortion activists masquerading as obstetricians. Now, I want to ask you a question with, I think, what's an obvious answer. But again, for the people listening to this show, if you're tuning in for the first time, if you're starting to get informed and educated on this topic and you were wondering this question, let's just ask an obvious question, Dr. Brent. Why is there no circumstance in which a partial birth abortion is necessary to save the life or for the life and health of the mother? And why is the delivery of the child actually far safer than a partial birth abortion for the mother? Well, the, they set up the premise that you know, this procedure is necessary because someone is critically ill and is dying and she's going to die if her pregnancy doesn't end quickly. Right. Um, the problem with partial birth abortion is it, it's not like the transporter on Star Trek that just you flip a switch and beam the baby out of there and it's over with in five seconds. Uh, you still actually have to deliver the baby. Right. They go through a process that is sometimes days long causing the cervix that is you know, still in a premature pregnancy to forcibly dilate to the point that the baby starts to come out. But the problem the abortionist has is that if you're doing this on a baby that has passed the age of viability, you know, where survival outside the uterus is possible, if that baby's not born dead, then they have a mess on their hands. So what they do is, is what is now the dangerous part of the procedure for the woman. If the baby's coming down head first, they shove the head back up inside and feel around inside and grab the feet and pull the baby out feet first. And then when the baby is almost completely outside the body, almost fully delivered, but the head is still just inside, they will take a sharp instrument and stick it in the back of the baby's neck at the base of the skull, creating a hole in the skull. And then they insert a suction instrument that sucks, literally sucks out the baby's brain so that the baby is dead and the skull collapses and the baby falls out and the delivery is done. So you're still delivering the baby, but you're doing it in a way that's more dangerous for a woman who in, in their scenario is critically ill and in need of a rapid delivery. Well, if, if, it's, if there's such a need for a rapid delivery, um, there are powerful medicines you can give to induce labor and make it happen faster. Um, or you can do a C-section and right. end the pregnancy, um, either of which needs to happen in a hospital with intensive care capabilities and a blood bank and a lab and other services and anesthesia and an operating room, not in some filthy back alley abortion clinic that hasn't been inspected in 20 years, doesn't have a lab, doesn't have a blood bank, doesn't have specialists, doesn't have an anesthesiologist. I mean, it's, it's mind-numbingly stupid, but um, the, the purpose of that dangerous procedure is no more than this, and I said it earlier. The purpose of a late-term abortion is to ensure that the baby is fully dead before fully delivered. Yep. Period. End of story. So... That's what they were defending. They wanted wow. to preserve this as one of several methods to perform a late-term abortion. Um, and you know, they, they were successful in inserting it into uh, you know, abortion jurisprudence. Um, wow. And ACOG as a professional organization has never 
corrected that public misperception. Um, and Kagan has never acknowledged her role uh, in what really happened. She said, oh, I reframed it, but you know, that, it, it, she did so much more than that. And that's yeah. just one example of, of ACOG's um, double-mindedness, their, their refusal to accept evidence uh, yeah. in the formulation of medical opinions. Yeah. As, as you know, I'm the medical director for reversal services for Heartbeat International. Um, I'm well aware of all the evidence that exists that says reversal is feasible and is yeah. effective for a large number of people. If that evidence wasn't there, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, but I do it. I did it yeah. today, uh, yeah. this morning. Um, ACOG holds the position that there is no credible evidence that progesterone can be used to interfere with the action of mifepristone uh, and salvaging a pregnancy. So if that's the case, I would like to have ACOG address technical bulletin number 225 that was published in October of 2020 by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Yeah, See, and we ACOG have a screenshot releases, of this yes. for you as well. We want we want the listeners to tune into this. So what Dr. Brent is saying, and then I want you to, to keep cruising for us, Dr. Brent, is this is just another reason why ACOG is a core jester in the kingdom of scientism. It's not just for their collusion with Elena Kagan to say, oh, never mind, uh, partial birth abortion is sometimes necessary to save the life of the mother, but also because in, in one of the many other ways that they have ignored the humanity of the unborn and the claims of the pro-life movement is by saying that the abortion reversal pill um, is ineffective and maybe even not even safe. And so, um, Dr. Brent, you're referring to this here, ACOG Practice Bulletin number 225, uh, says replaces Practice Bulletin number 143 from March 2014, entitled Medi Medication Abortion Up to 70 Days of Gestation. So talk us through this um, about how their own claims in their writing contradict what they say about the abortion reversal pill because it's clear they want to discredit this so that more abortions are performed, less babies are saved, and their pockets continue to be lined by pro-abortion money. Yes. Well, first, uh, this is kind of a little, another little rabbit trail. Listeners, read that bold print title, Medication Abortion Up to 70 Days of Gestation. That's, seven, that's 10 weeks. 70 days is 10 weeks. So ACOG's official position at the moment is that medication abortion should be limited to no more than 10 weeks gestation. Uh, the woman who I did a reversal for this morning was 11 and a half weeks. Um, wow. Planned Parenthood itself, their website, the last time I looked, said we offer it up to 77 days. Um, and there are now that the REMS restrictions are being removed and uh, those things are happening, uh, there's even a website that I've seen for a, an abortion facility in Orlando that is offering the use of mifepristone almost into the third trimester, doing late second trimester terminations. Um, oh there is no evidence that that is safe. ACOG's position um, in that bulletin uh, says that, you know, talks about abortion, medication abortion up to 10 weeks or 70 days. In it, they go through several aspects. That uh, that particular technical bulletin is just the how-to manual for 
doctors that want to do medication abortion. It gives them lots of details and cites over 100 different references supporting their side of the issue. Um, but ACON, it's their position that there is no credible evidence that supports the use of progesterone to interfere with the action of mifepristone or reverse its effects. Uh, they say that repeatedly. They say that in court cases, they say that in declarations, experts testifying for the other side say that repeatedly under penalty of perjury in declarations in cases that I've read where I've also participated both for the Attorney General of Tennessee and for the one of Indiana in these wow. two, in this issue. So and just for just for if, our young listeners, once again, when, when Dr. Brent says mifepristone, he's referring to the first regimen of the abortion pill that begins to cut off the natural hormone <laughs> progesterone that breaks down the lining of the uterus. That's what starts to cause the abortion. And when uh, when Dr. Brent says progesterone, he's talking about the natural hormone that is used in the abortion reversal pill to reverse the effects of the medication abortion. So just for new listeners of the show, yes. that's what we're talking about. Keep going. So, um, so. Now, understand what the abortion industry frequently does for women. When a provider either does a surgical abortion or gives them the medication abortion, those women also want birth control. They, they if, you know, pregnancy is not a good idea for them this month, it's not going to be next month either. They, they don't want another unintended pregnancy. So the abortion providers frequently provide birth control for the women at the visit on the day when their procedure or their medication is done. So in this position, in this technical bulletin, um, ACOG addresses that. And remember, okay. ACOG says uh, there's no evidence that progesterone will interfere with mifeprex uh, in the termination of a pregnancy. Right. So they, there are many different kinds of birth control. There are all the different pills that have combinations of estrogen and progesterone. But then there's also a pill that has progesterone only. There's the IUD that goes in the uterus and the implant in the arm that have progesterone only. And there's an injection called Depo-Provera that uh, is given once every three months that is a synthetic form of progesterone. In this technical bulletin number 225 on the last two pages, the American College of OBGYN, who says that progesterone cannot and will not interfere with mifeprex, okay. they warn providers to avoid administering progesterone-only forms of birth control on the day the mifeprex is administered because it can interfere with the efficacy of the mifeprex. <laughs> wow. So, so let's pull this up here. Let's pull this up here. Let, talk your listeners through this. We have the document here. Uh, why don't you explain exactly how they're, sure. they're cutting the legs off their own argument? They're on the first, the top part of the upper part of the yellow circle. <clears throat> I circled the final paragraph. I'm going to read it. Concern has been raised that the immediate use of hormonal contraception that contains progestins could theoretically interfere with medication abortion efficacy. And then you skip on down. It says DMPA. That's Depo-Provera. Many of your listeners will be familiar with that. Depo-Provera injection at the time of mifepristone administration may slightly increase the risk of an ongoing pregnancy. What does that mean? What's an ongoing pregnancy? It's one where the mifeprex fails to kill the baby. Right. So the next paragraph, next circled on the next page, um, 
they look at it, they randomized in a study women who got Depo-Provera on the day they took Mifeprex and women who got Depo-Provera at a follow-up visit. The numbers they came up with show that the women who got Depo-Provera on the day the Mifeprex was given were four times more likely to have a fetus or an embryo that survived the Mifeprex. <laughs> Quadrupled the survival rates. So much for no evidence. I mean, it's, wow. it's as if... You know, it's as if ACOG, you know, you just look at the way they do things. And they're, here they're saying, and this is just kind of a would-be funny if it wasn't so tragic sort of paraphrase. Um, ACOG's position is this. There's no evidence that strong natural progesterone will help the baby survive the mifeprex. But don't you dare give the weak synthetic progesterone Depo-Provera because it will quadruple the chance the baby will survive the mifeprex. <laughs> Which is it? Simple question, wow. three-word question, which yeah. is it? Wow, I think me and the listeners of this show would, would pay to get you in court hearings uh, with lobbyists <laughs> and the president of ACOG uh, to put that question to them. So what Dr. Ben is saying, you guys, is that ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, is, knows this. They know the reality that progesterone, the natural hormone, when used to counter the effects of the abortion pill, will increase the likelihood that they will reverse the abortion pill and that they will save the unborn child. Dr. Bridges went through their published documents saying as such, but they're ignoring that. They're overlooking that because they put ideology before evidence-based medicine. They put ideology and politics before science, which basically encapsulate the entire liberal establishment and agenda. Um, because science is the centerpiece of secular progressivism, but because they believe truth is endlessly malleable, as is human nature, they can change the science whenever they want to fit their political goals. That is, that is some scary stuff. It is. So, I mean, those, those, those two examples alone are more than enough proof that the American public and the American judiciary and the American legislatures across the country should not respect ACOG's opinion uh, and position when it comes to the issue of abortion. And for your listeners that are OBGYNs who are, may have already known this, or maybe they didn't, and now they're a little dismayed about paying ACOG dues, look up the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. Amen. It is um, more than 4,000 physicians, more than 9,000 pro-life healthcare providers altogether who have formed an organization that stands for truth and ethics and science and medicine and for what's best for both the mother and the baby. Uh, AAPLOG, American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. Their dues annually are half what ACOG's dues are. Uh, and their lobbying goes from the pro-life side. I personally know people who run the organization uh, executive Director Dr. Donna Harrison and Chairman of the Board Dr. Christina Francis are both just excellent, excellent leadership uh, for this organization. Put your faith and trust in them, uh, not ACOG, uh, never ACOG, Amen. unless they're willing to change how they do things. And honestly, I just, I don't see that ever happening. Yeah. That's right. Amen. Well, well, maybe we'll do a, a panel with them sometime. Maybe we'll get you and all these people together for some special event in the future, and, and we'll get these important voices um, that can't be ignored uh, anymore. And I think in our political climate, people are 
um, more disgruntled than they've ever been before for the same reasons that we just spent the last 40 minutes discussing because of how science has been used to achieve political goals um, at the expense of truth and human flourishing and the American public. People are very disgruntled. They're looking for truth more so than ever before. They're going to alternative sources of information to find the truth because they don't have trust anymore. Uh, so much, I mean, not even just in the mainstream media, but even in these allegedly unbiased, follow the science establishments. Um, and so we want your voices. We want the voices at the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs um, to be dealt with, to be acknowledged, um, so we can change minds, change hearts, and save lives. Uh, Dr. Brent, thank you again for joining the show today. Um, where can people connect with you and any closing comments? Um, well, I, you can find me on social media. I have a Twitter feed, CBrentBowles1, uh, and I have another Twitter feed, Supremely Raw. Uh, you can reach out, contact, you can message through there. Um, I'll warn you, I don't argue with people that send me private combative messages, uh, so don't waste your time or mine. Uh, but um, uh, those would probably be the best ways to do that. Um, and just, you know, the, for women who have, if you're listening and then you later find yourself in the position where you've chosen to pursue a medication abortion, but you want to reverse it, go to abortionpillreversal.com. There's an 877 toll-free number answered 24 hours a day, seven days a week, where you'll be connected with a provider like me. There are um, over a thousand providers across the country who voluntarily offer their time to help you and attempt to reverse uh, the, what the abortion industry has done to you. Um, so Seth, thank you. Thank you for your show and for your work. Uh, your passion is, uh, is inspiring. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks once again for your work. Congratulations on the new position. And uh, we'll see you back on the show again soon. Thank you. Thank you guys for joining the show today. Uh, what, a, what an important conversation. I hope that blessed and encouraged you. I'd encourage you to go listen to previous episodes with Dr. Brent Bowles. Um, we did uh, two other just this year about mail order murder as the FDA, with uh, the advice, I'm sure, and pressure of the Democratic Party, lifted the safety regulations on the sale of the abortion pill. So now it can be literally snail mailed to your mailbox. Uh, and we've covered a lot of other myths about how abortion is safer than childbirth and going into the actual studies and claims and and what's wrong with them. So go back and listen to those. They're a real blessing. But thanks for joining us today. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give this show a rating and review. It really helps us reach more people at such an important time to stand for life because if we don't stand together now as pro-lifers and Christians for the rights of the unborn, guess what? We won't be able to stand freely for any of our other rights that flow from that first and most important of, of all rights. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram. And if you want to uh, book me for an event or sign up for my newsletter, go to sethgruber.com. S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com. See my speaking schedule, uh, come in here, a live event, uh, or do request me for an event before my calendar fills up at the end of the year. Thank you guys so much. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. <laughs>